being converted after finishing college. I was converted within about six months of finishing undergrad, and immediately there was a desire for ministry, and with that desire, it was also connected with a desire for international missions. I had no idea what that would look like. All I knew at that point, having grown up in a Southern Baptist church, was that when the missionaries came to visit, they always wore clothes that were about 40 years out of date, and they showed really boring slides. Um, but for some reason, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I ended up, the guy who was influential, humanly speaking, in my conversion, connected me with a missionary in Ethiopia, and I ended up the next year, this is 14, 15 months after being converted to Christ, uh, ended up spending that summer, the summer of 2000 in Ethiopia, and after that have been back some 42, 43 times. I've had to change passports, so I don't know exactly how many times over the years. I lived there from 2005 to 2007, and for a long time had this struggle particularly during those years, 2005 to 2007, and then immediately after that, feeling this struggle of trying to figure out if I was called to serve in a land like that, particularly in Ethiopia, or if I was called to serve as pastor of a local church. And I spent a lot of time and heartache trying to figure out exactly what the calling was and I eventually just came to the conclusion that my calling was to serve Christ, and whatever doors he opened, I would walk through. What that has provided for me now is like the best of both worlds. I have the privilege of pastoring just down the road in Radford, but then I also have the privilege of working, as Charlie mentioned, with HeartCry Missionary Society, serving on the board of directors, and it gives me the opportunity to travel around to the different areas of the world uh, where we have mission efforts. I want to consider a theme with you rather than a text. I think it'll be clear that I'm pulling it from a text. The, the general um, theme that I want to talk about is a biblical one, but I want to talk about the motivation and the method of missions. The motivation and the method of missions. Now, this will be true in I may use the term interchangeably throughout our time together, but this is true not just for international missions, but also for local evangelism. The only difference between evangelism and missions, we use those terms very distinctly, but it's proximity. How close do they live to us? We, in evangelism, we're seeking to get the gospel to those that we're coming into contact with, and in missions, we're trying to get the gospel to those that we don't see on an everyday basis. The story of the Bible is one of God sending His Son into the world to save sinners. And Christ did come. In the fullness of time, He was born of a woman and He came and He lived and He kept every aspect of the law that He Himself had given. And He went to the cross to die as a substitute for sinners like you and me. And on the third day was raised again. After his ascension, when he had told the disciples, wait, and the I will send the Holy Spirit. And he did that. The Spirit came, and Peter preached that famous sermon at Pentecost, and 3,000 were converted 
that day. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke records this statement. They, that is, those who had believed the gospel, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That is, those who had been converted through the preached gospel were giving the, the lion's share of their attention to the Bible, his doctrine. There was a focus on prayer. They were praying together. And there was an intentionality with regard to fellowship. That is, they were basically, what we would say in our day and time, doing life together. They were living in community. This was church for them. But it wasn't long before they became a little too inward focused and God allowed persecution to come upon them. In Acts chapter 8, we see that this gathering in Jerusalem of believers were then scattered out to proclaim the gospel elsewhere into Samaria and then in Ethiopia. In Acts chapter 10, they're in Caesarea where the Gentiles and Cornelius believe. In Acts chapter 11, they're in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. In Acts 13, they're sent out from Antioch. And these ripples from there in the beginning with the establishment of the first church recorded in the book of Acts, these ripples continue to this day. We who are here tonight, we are the result of the efforts of Christians banding together to form local churches who hold high the authority of the Bible, who believe God in prayer, who love one another as Christ had commanded them to, and who were striving to reach others with the message of the cross. That's why we're here. No one who's here who is a believer is here for any other reason than this, because this is the God-ordained method of ministry. And this is a spiritual heritage that's worth continuing, which is why I want to open it up and consider it tonight, that our that the, the flame even if it's just a spark, might be fanned to some degree that we might pursue Christ's glory with regard to missions and evangelism. Now, there's a crucial order here that's helpful for us to understand. It's absolutely crucial that we get it in the right order. It's very possible and even probable that we could hear the, about the need of those in foreign lands or about the need of those in a lower income area of town even. And we would be driven by a desire to make a difference. And we skip over the crucial first steps of what we see happening there in Acts chapter 2. That is, they're giving themselves to Christ. They're giving themselves to daily seeking Him in His Word and in prayer and in fellowshipping one with another. And that's what the order is. Upon believing as individuals, we then join ourselves together as a church and then intentionally reach out to others. Now, what I'm suggesting is not just some method from a missional guru. I'm not one of those guys. Actually, most who are in our most in our day who are chanting the missional mantras, they don't function this way at all. Missional has become the in vogue thing to do among local churches. But it doesn't look like the Bible's version of missionary activity. When it comes to missions and evangelism, the foundation of missions and the goal of missions is the church. It's not just 
one of the ministries of the church. It's not just primarily the task of a church. It is exclusively the task of the church. It is the church that God has called to reach out and extend mercy and grace and love in the gospel mainly to those who don't believe. And if we find ourselves disagreeing with this, that is is exclusively the task of the church, or if we have caveats or yeah buts, then basically we're denying the primacy of the church as the only God-ordained eternal institution. The church is that. It is the only God-ordained eternal institution. In fact, there are only two God-ordained institutions. The family and the church. The family is temporal and the church is eternal. But we have found ourselves with regard to missions and evangelism. We live in a day where executive elites, rather than church elders, get together and strategize and call shots from afar. I mentioned that I'd spent some time in Ethiopia on my very first trip there. I remember spending the night with some missionaries. I was actually living with a family of Ethiopians. I lived in a, in a house of 11 Ethiopians. So whenever I needed to take a shower every week or 10 days, I would have to go into the city and stay with some Americans who were there. And we were having breakfast one morning, and they were asking what was on my agenda for the week, and I was telling them that I'd been given an opportunity to preach in, in a new church plant that was just across the mountains. And I was back and forth between two passages, two themes that I didn't know what I was going to do. And their suggestion was, listen, the Bible is important and all, but really, you just, they're a storytelling people. Just tell them a story. They don't really need to hear the preached gospel. Just tell them a story. I mean, I'm 19 and a half years removed from that, and it still rings in my ears like they don't need the gospel. They just need a story. No, they don't. They need the preached gospel. It's the only thing that is sufficient. I have a friend who is serving in Ethiopia. He had been there more than a dozen years at this time, and he went out to, he was ministering to a nomadic tribe and had been for 12 to 15 years, and after 12 or 15 years, they finally decided that they had enough currency with the local tribe to actually share the gospel with them, and they did around the fire one night. These were camel herds, I mean, so there's camel and goats all around, and they share the gospel, and there's immediate joy, they're elated that there is a God out there, and that they have hope of eternal life. And then immediately, there's disappointment on their face. You know why? Why did you wait so long? So many of our friends and family have died since you've been coming out here. Why did you hold back this good news so long? Another conversation I had with missionary friends there on the field, they had previously been working very closely with the, the local churches there, but they had decided to, to pull back and go underground and go off the radar, so to speak. And I mentioned in passing that back when they did ministry different, before they divorced the church, and they took offense at that. Like, no, we didn't divorce the church. We like to refer to it more as a separation rather than divorce. 
And this is the reason given, because the church hinders our progress. If the church is the foundation and the church is the goal, there's no way that the church hinders the progress. Basically, by making a statement like that, we're saying we know better than God. We know better than the prescribed method that he has given us with regard to how we worship him and how we multiply believers and churches. Now, with all of that said, we admire the zeal and the efforts that are being made around the world. However, we must not sit idly by allowing disobedience to mark our generation with regard to reaching the lost with the gospel. If we have the truth, and I'm guessing that you're convinced that you do, then we must outpace everyone taking it to the nations. If we're convinced that God is a God of vengeance and a God of wrath, and He will rain down His wrath on those who don't believe, then we must be utterly committed to taking the gospel to our co-workers and classmates and community members. The foundation of missions, the goal of missions is the church. Now, again, this is not the latest strategy from a church planting movement leadership team. I don't belong to one of those. And in reality, they don't operate in this fashion. The method that I am seeking to put before you is the pattern that we have in the scriptures, the simple straightforward, God-ordained method of spreading the good news that God sent His Son, Christ Jesus, into the world to save sinners from their sin and to provide them with everlasting life. I am completely and utterly convinced that the greatest possible benefit to mankind comes through the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of local churches to proclaim the full counsel of God's word and minister according to its commands, its precepts, and its wisdom. A work like this can only be accomplished through the supernatural providence of God and the means which He has ordained. Biblical preaching, intercessory prayer, sacrificial service, unconditional love one for another, and true Christ-likeness in every area of life. I mentioned that there's a necessary order and connection here. The reason that we must give ourselves first to God and then to one another in the local church is because genuine, authentic Christian fellowship always gives way to evangelism and missions. If we are failing in evangelism and missions, the failure comes before that reality. It's a failure of genuine, authentic Christian fellowship. Either, either we have not given ourselves to God wholly, or we haven't given ourselves to one another, which is important, necessary. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, Romans 12.10. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10.
By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13, 35. Now, in order to illustrate this motivation for missions, I've opened up the door a little bit with regard to the method. But let's back up and seriously consider a sufficient motivation for missions and evangelism. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God asks. Then I said, Isaiah records, here am I, send me. Such a familiar missionary passage. But this familiar passage is preceded by an encounter that Isaiah had. And that encounter reveals for us makes clear to us the only sufficient motive or incentive for missions and evangelism. Listen as I read the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. God said, Go. And tell. What was Isaiah's motivation to answer so willingly? Here am I, send me. It was the displayed glory of the triune God. When the prophet saw the majesty of God manifested before him, he was immediately aware of his inadequacy, unclean, undone. And not only the prophet but he recognized all of humanity was filthy in the sight of Almighty God. But he wasn't left to wallow in his hopeless misery. God implemented his eternal plan to rescue and redeem his people. It's pictured perfectly. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. And Isaiah upon being transformed by the power of God through the gospel. The obvious need for others to hear of this offer of forgiveness is made known. It's as if God is saying more than, whom shall I send? But how will they hear Isaiah? Who's going to tell the rest of humanity? Who's going to tell them that God created them and that God loves them 
and that they must repent and trust in Him. Isaiah saw the manifested glory of the triune God resulting in the now famous answer, Here am I, send me. Isaiah had been a witness in the throne room. Do you know who Isaiah saw sitting on the throne? Listen to these words from John's Gospel. Though Christ had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and He has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Listen to what John says. But John records this. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Isaiah saw Jesus seated on the throne with matchless glory manifested before him. Which is why when the question goes forth, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's a resounding, here am I, send me. Isaiah was completely convinced of the glory of God. He had been a witness in the throne room of God. He had experienced the kindness of God in Christ as the the coal was taken from the altar and touched his lips, picturing the forgiveness that had been granted. Therefore, he was perfectly willing then. Willing and able to go and tell. This glory of God in Jesus Christ is the only incentive, the only motivation that will last. In fact, not just with regard to missions or evangelism, but a concern for Christ's name being exalted will affect every area of our lives. That's the expectation of the New Testament. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what we've been saved for. To worship God with the entirety of our lives. And true worship of the living God will result in missions and evangelism. Every time. Always. Genuine, authentic Christian fellowship gives way to evangelism and missions and spreading the good news that God sent Jesus to save sinners. It is impossible. Strong statement. It is impossible to truly worship the God of the Bible, yet not care two cents about whether anyone else worships Him or not. If you don't care if your neighbors know Christ, if you don't care if the unreached ever hear the good news of the Gospel, the problem is not with you not caring. The problem is not that they're so bad off. The problem is quite likely you aren't truly worshiping this God. Worship while we're here on earth that does not produce mission in our life is hypocrisy. 
Ultimately, it's the worship of self and not of God. Because if we worship God, then our hearts are intrigued and interested in the things that God is interested and intrigued by. Which is the nations and the neighborhoods hearing the good news. And churches being established and people worshiping Him. In fact, we cannot actually praise God if we have no desire to proclaim Him and His gospel to others. Because the gospel is not only about us. It's about Him. And He deserves honor and praise from all people everywhere. How is that going to happen? Well, it happens by each of us saying, here am I. Send me. Send me across the street. Send me across town. Send me across the commonwealth. Send me across the border. Send me across the globe. Here am I. Send me. Because I've seen the majesty of Christ. God, use me. The foundation of missions and evangelism is the church. The motivation of missions is the glory of Christ. And the goal is the establishment of biblical churches. Now, here's the thing. When we botch the foundation or the method we're almost guaranteed to fail in the end. I spent the better part of yesterday in my backyard digging six holes. I'm putting in a patio and a pavilion. Six holes. The, the ground is dry. Okay, 24 by 24 by 30. Big holes. All of my kids, why are you digging these big holes? Because the foundation matters. I don't want this structure blowing away. When we botch the foundation of the church being the method that God has determined that reaches out into our neighborhoods and into the nations, we are almost guaranteed to fail in the end. The motive is the revealed glory of Christ and the method I've mentioned already is the church, but let's think about it in this context. If the motive is the glory of Christ, then the method is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And in doing that, we're keeping a Christocentric view or focus on missions. It's about Christ receiving honor both now and forever. When we think about the method of missions, you know, it's not often that we stop and actually consider the all-important issue of how has God determined to spread His fame throughout the world? But I think you would agree it only makes sense and should go without saying that we would be insistent on following His will regarding His glory and His gospel. And if we consult His Word, we see quite clearly that God sent His Son into the world as both the message and the messenger of the good news that God saves sinners. Right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And this son, Jesus, in the famous high priestly prayer, talking to his disciples, says, talking before his disciples to his father, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And again, post-resurrection, pre-ascension, Jesus to his disciples, as the father has sent me, I also send you. We began by looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Listen to chapter 2, verse 33 of Acts. Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, just follow this with me just briefly. God sent the gospel in His Son into the world. Jesus sent His disciples into the world. Christ, now seated on the throne at the right hand of God, sent the Holy Spirit into His disciples at Pentecost, establishing the New Testament church. And it is the Holy Spirit of God that sends us out from our churches. Acts 13.4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas. And this has continued to be the way that God has worked throughout time. There isn't another method. The Bible is completely sufficient. We have all that we need here. In fact, this method is pictured vividly in the passage that Charlie read as we began this evening in 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ controls us. Not our love for Him, but the love of Christ for us. The love that He has for us that was demonstrated by His death. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates. A wonderful verse. It's present tense. He didn't demonstrate. He is continuing to demonstrate His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, He died, Christ died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. What a glorious truth that we're saved from ourselves. We don't have to live for ourselves but we get the privilege of living for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. And then the glorious effects of this gospel. All things are new. The old is gone. The new has come. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, the responsibility and the opportunity of promoting peace. Peace between God and man. God saves us to send us. God reconciles us to Himself, making us reconcilers of others. He has granted us eternal amnesty. We were guilty of treason. We offended the God who made us. And yet He's given us freedom in Christ. We were enslaved to sin. In bondage to it. And we've been freed in Christ. Free to walk with Him and serve Him. And promote His glory in all that we do. It's the way that the Apostle says it there. Therefore, as a result of this radical change from within affecting us. We're now ambassadors from Him, of His. Ambassadors for Christ. 
We hated him. And he's made us his own. And he sends us out as his representatives. I mean, what a privilege to be used by the high king of heaven as he woos others into the kingdom of his love. He's made us ambassadors, representatives. He's called us to speak on behalf of our king because we know him. Because we completely agree with his policies. Because we promote his agenda. That's what, that's what ambassadors do. That's what we're called to do here in the place that God has put us in. On earth, locally and globally. Evangelism and missions does not have to be some super complex strategy. It is simply this. Promote Christ and His glory to your neighbors and to all nations. And the mission of your church, the mission of Grace Church, cannot be less than the whole church bringing the whole gospel to the whole world. That's what we're called to do. It is not reserved for enthusiasts. If peace has been made between you and God, you have received the ministry of reconciliation. You cannot get around it. You cannot delegate it. You cannot abdicate it. It is yours. Unless our Christianity saves us from selfishness to service, from misery to ministry, it will never save us from hell to heaven. It will never save us from sin to salvation. God has determined and designed that missions and evangelism flow forth freely from the local church. So what does it look like practically? I've summed it up in three short statements. It looks like gazing at Christ. It looks like glorifying Christ. And it looks like going to proclaim Christ. I said it's not super complex. We come together as God's people. And we gaze at the glory of Christ on the pages of His Word through the preached Gospel. We glorify Him in every area of our life. And we go across the street and across the globe proclaiming the majesty of His name. Now, when we think about evangelism and we think about missions, we often think about it being reserved for particular enthusiasts. People who have certain gifts or qualifications. Everyone doesn't need to be on the street corner or on the university campus, or at the abortion clinic. But some must be. Just like everyone doesn't need to go home tonight and pack their bags and head for the Middle East, or Southeast Asia, or Central America. But some might need to. God has determined and designed that missions and evangelism flow out of the local church. I think it sums it up well to use the closing portion of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, 
according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You remember the motive of missions, the glory of Christ. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus. The method of missions, the bride of Christ. To him be the glory in the church. Glory in the church. It's seen there. This is our privilege. Our responsibility is to show forth the glory of Christ primarily. And it's Christ's glory. In Ephesians 3, it's clear to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. It's the same glory of God being revealed in the bride and in the groom, in Christ and in his church. The glory of the groom, we might say, is visible in the bride. And it's not just for us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. If there's going to be long-term health in a local church, it will be because the first and highest task of the church is to seek God's glory in Christ. And gazing at that glory results in glorifying Him and going to proclaim Him. In order that the praise that begins here on earth in our local churches might spread right around the globe, Igniting worship that will continue, not just to the next generation, but forever and ever. That's why God has saved us. To make us His own. To give us the privileged opportunity of being His ambassadors, representing Him in our community and in the world. In order that others too might come to know Him. So that worship might be ignited in our souls as individuals, in our churches locally, around the world globally. Worship that will last forever and ever. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to His power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God, we pray that you would make it so. That we as your people would be increasingly and utterly convinced of the glory of Jesus Christ. That it might drive us to our knees in prayer and to the heavenlies in worship. And to our neighbors with the gospel. And to the nations with the good news that Christ came to save sinners. God, you alone have the capacity to work this into our hearts as individuals and as a church. We pray that you would do it for the sake of Christ. Who alone is worthy of all honor and glory, splendor and majesty both now and forever. God, we pray, hear us and be our help. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen.